Where are the children here? Let's see. Got Okay. Kids, um, you know what it means to do something half-heartedly? I think most of you children who are you no know, real young children here, so probably you do know what it means to do something half-heartedly. It means to not show a lot of interest in what you're doing, that's doing it half-heartedly, or not putting a lot of effort into what you're doing. That's also doing it half-heartedly, as we often say. Now, this may not be true about you, but when I was a boy, I sometimes did my chores this way. You wouldn't do that, I'm sure, but I did. Sometimes, not all the time. Sometimes I would just kind of, as my grandmother used to say, give it a lick and a promise, whatever it was. Uh, which is to say, not really do it terribly carefully. Uh, that's, that's doing something, whatever it is, some chore, half-heartedly. Sweep the garage. Up north we used to shovel the driveway in the wintertime. Those were some of the chores I was given. Make my bed, so on and so forth. You may have similar chores, but perhaps you've done something half-heartedly before. Anyway, generally speaking, doing things half-heartedly, most of the time anyway, is not really a good thing. At least, at least not the best thing. Normally, we should do what we do, the scripture tells, tells us this, for the Lord, uh, even our chores, and we should do that with eagerness and with enthusiasm, even if it's other, otherwise kind of a, something that most people don't find interesting or joyful to do. You should try to do your chores that way, and you adults your jobs. Well, I bring up this word half-hearted because it fits this king that we're looking at today. In fact, I titled my sermon, Half-Hearted Fidelity, which means faithfulness. Half-hearted faithfulness. It's kind of an oxymoron almost. Well, that's what is described in this passage for this king. We're going to look at the king again next time we're together, Lord willing. Uh, more about the king and the latter portion of his reign, which actually got worse. But uh, today we're looking at verses 1 through 13. And I'll say, talk about the king here in just a minute. We have been working our way through Second Chronicles, which is to say through the records of the reigns of the kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. Kings, the author of Kings, deals with both the leaders, I don't want to call them kings in the north, because really their king in the north was the, the Davidic king in the south, but the writer of Kings deals with the rulers in the north and with the kings in the south, the southern kingdom of Judah as well as the northern kingdom of Israel. But the chronicler only deals with the Judaite kings, because in his mind, and in the Holy Spirit's mind, also as evident from uh, what the writer, the chronicler is saying is really they're only the, they're the only ones who are really important. The Davidic kings, the Davidic descendants, uh, the descendants of David, the royal descendants of David, and so he focuses in Chronicles only on them to the and says almost nothing about uh, except when he has to about the northern rulers who were sometimes called kings. Anyway, we have now come here in Chronicles 25 to the reign of King Amaziah. I realize that a lot of these names sound familiar. There's Ahaziah, Azariah, Amaziah, and others. But we're on Amaziah with an M today. This king, descendant of David, reigned over the southern kingdom of Judah from approximately 796 B.C., 
to 767 B.C. I just copied that from uh, some commentators I was reading. I assume they did their homework, and then these days are right, but I, these dates are right. But I didn't, I didn't check uh, any further than what I saw. That's a good guess. So right around 800 B.C. and the next 30 years or so after that. Amaziah was the son of King Joash, who we looked at last time we were together, the grandson of King Ahaziah, the great-grandson of King Jehoram, the great-great-grandson of King Jehoshaphat, the great-great-great-grandson of Asa, and I'll stop there and say the, and these are seven greats, great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandson of David. Got it? Seven greats, and then grandson is who we're looking at today of David, Davidic king. Most of David's royal descendants fit into one of two categories in both Chronicles and Kings. Those categories are those monarchs who did what was right in the sight of the Lord. For example, Asa and Jehoshaphat were considered kings who did what was right in the eyes of the Lord by the chronicler and by God. And then the second category, uh, uh, main category, was those who didn't do what was right, who did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Uh, Kings that we've looked at already who were categorized this way are Jehoram and Ahaziah. Well, we now come to a king, Amaziah, whose description is more nuanced than either of these two that I've just mentioned that are normally used, done, did right, did evil. This is more nuanced. The chronicler, and, and verse 2, by the way, is where we read of his summary description of his, morally speaking, says he did right in the sight of the Lord, yet not with a whole heart. That's how he's described. And the chronicler divides Amaziah's reign into two periods. The first, which we will look at today, describes the period when Amaziah was half-heartedly faithful, we'll call it that, to the Lord and his covenant obligations before the Lord. The second period describes, is a period when Amaziah more or less did what was unfaithful. We're going to look at that next time we're together uh, in, Lord willing, in uh, 2 Chronicles 25. But those are essentially the two halves or portions of Amaziah's reign. And in this sense, because there are two portions, one when he was semi-faithful, we'll say, or half-heartedly faithful, and later when he was not, in many ways, uh, Amaziah's reign, or in that way, resembled the reign of his father, Joash. You recall that Joash was only faithful while his mentor, Jehoiada, the high priest, was alive. And once Jehoiada died, Joash, morally speaking, fell off a cliff. In some ways, well, not, well not, not quite as bad as Joash, Amaziah, and in some ways, a lot of ways, repre- uh, resembles his father's reign with some differences, which we'll look at next time. Anyway, verse thir- uh, first 13 verses, th- uh, four points. They're all, uh, they're, uh, some of them are fairly brief, so don't, don't fret the fact that I said four. First, we're going to see Amaziah rightly executes his father's murderers. Rightly. Secondly, we're going to see Amaziah wrongly hires Israelite mercenaries. Thirdly, we're going to see, uh, we see in this text, Amaziah, Amaziah wrongly worries about his 
sunk costs. I'll talk more about that later. And then finally, Amaziah rightly dismisses his Israelite mercenaries. So we got wrongs and rights in here, and thus the half-hearted moniker. First, Amaziah rightly executes his father's, Joash's, murderers. We see this in verses 3 and 4. And he executes these men, even though these men, whom he executes, (coughs) were instruments through whom God himself had punished King Joash, Amaziah's dad, for Joash's infidelity. So let's go back. Uh, well, and the record, by the way, of Joash's rebellion against the Lord is infidelity, and God's response to that infidelity is back in the previous chapter, and we're going to read verses 17 through 25. So go back there to first, uh, 2 Chronicles 24. We'll start in verse 17. This is dealing with Joash now. Remember, and Jehoiada, Jehoiada just died, verses 15 and 16, and then we come to verse 17. But after the death of Jehoiada, the officials of Judah came and bowed down to the king, that's Joash, and the king listened to them. And they, Joash and the and his officials, abandoned the house of the Lord, the God of their fathers, and served the Asherim and the idols. So wrath came upon Judah and Jerusalem for their this their guilt. Yet he, God, sent prophets to them to bring them back to the Lord. Though they testified against them, they would not listen. Then the Spirit of God came on Zechariah, the son of Jehoiada the priest, and he stood above the people and said to them, and obviously Joash was here for this, Thus God has said, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord and do not prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, he also has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, uh, against uh, Zechariah, the prophet there. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king, Joash, they stoned him to death in the court of the house of the Lord. Thus Joash, the king, did not remember the kindness which his father Jehoiada had shown him. Uh, But he murdered his son. And as he died, he said, this is Zechariah now, may the Lord see and avenge. Now it came about at the turn of the year that the army of the Arameans came up against him, against Joash, and they came to Judah and Jerusalem, uh, destroyed all the officials of the people from among the people, and sent all their spoil to the king of Damascus. Indeed, the army of the Arameans came with a small number of men, yet the Lord delivered a very great army, that is Judah's, into their hands, because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus, he, they rather, executed judgment on Joash. And then verse 25, finally, And when they had departed from him, for they left him, Joash, very sick, his servants conspired against him, because of the blood of the son of Jehoiada the priest, and murdered him on his bed. So he died, and they buried him in the city of David, but they did not bury him in the tombs of the kings. The text that I just read to you makes it clear that Joash got what he deserved. He got justice. And the text also makes it clear that it was the Lord 
who orchestrated Joash's violent departure from this world and his ignominious burial. But even though Joash's violent and dishonorable death was the Lord's judgment upon him for his persistent covenant-breaking ways, the men whom God used to bring the former king's life to an end were still responsible for unjustly taking another man's life, namely Joash's life. They murdered him. God arranged it providentially, but they were guilty of murder. This is instructive, by the way. God decrees all things. We as uh, Reformed folks uh, are convinced that that's the case, including evil. He decrees evil. That is to say, he arranges or predestines what occurs, including the murder of Joash. Uh, by his servants. And yet, that doesn't mean that the creature is not responsible for his conduct. He is. Um, That's a a hard thing to understand fully, but it's, uh, we believe, biblical truth. And it's something that we have to acknowledge, especially when we see evil in the world, that uh, it's not, the world isn't out of control just because evil men are doing, or evil women, are doing evil things. God is still in control, even though they are responsible for their wickedness. So the point is made here. Uh, and also, by the way, Assyria and Babylon were used by God to punish um, the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, respectively, Uh, And yet, we are told in Isaiah, I think it's chapter 10, that God punished both of those nations for their wickedness in in, uh, attacking Israel. Again, further evidence that this is, in fact, biblical truth that we're uh, dealing with, though difficult to understand. So, the Lord uh, orchestrated this, uh, uh, this death of uh, Joash. And just as Joash was rightly put to death for his evil murder and murderous ways, because he murdered, he had ordered the murder of Zechariah and was worshiping the Baals and the Asherim, false idols. Even though just as the Lord put him to death, so Joash, Joash's murderers were now being put to death for their evil ways, for their uh, law-breaking, for their moral Uh, or immoral, I should say, actions. And that's what we read of in verses 3 and 4. Now that the chronicler and the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit speaking through him, approved of Amaziah's execution of his father's murders, that that is the case is evident from the fact that the chronicler cites the commandment set forth in Deuteronomy 24.16 that each man shall be put to death for his own sin. That's a citation from Deuteronomy, uh, the law, Deuteronomy 24, 16. These men were executed by King Amaziah because they had unjustly taken the previous king, his father's life. And their execution that is, the execution of these men by Amaziah, was in accordance with the Lord's will, as expressed in the Mosaic Law, 
that he cites here in uh, verses uh, verse four. Yeah, in verse four. Amaziah was the human instrument that the Lord used to impose his justice upon Joash's murderers. Now, Amaziah is not guilty, by the way, in uh, in killing these men because he is an appointed instrument to uh, enforce justice. That was not the case for Joash's servants, you see. Even though Joash was an evil man, covenant breaker, proved to be a, a, a flagrant covenant breaker, and God did indeed punish him through those men. They didn't have the right, um, if you will, because they were not the civil magistrate. They didn't have the right to put him to death under the law. Only the civil magistrate has the power of the sword. This Amaziah is the civil magistrate. And he is putting to death, rightly, without any guilt accruing to himself, these evil men for their evil deed. Or deeds. Notice too, by the way, that the chroniclers and the Holy Spirit's speaking through him, their approval of the restraint that Amaziah demonstrated by refusing to execute the perpetrator's children. However, he, Amaziah, did not, verse 4, he did not put their children, the children of those men that he did put to death, he did not put their children to death uh, in accordance with uh, the the command that is cited there. Fathers shall not be put to death for their sons, nor sons be put to death for their fathers. And Amaziah honored that, uh, obeyed that stricture, uh, that commandment, and did not kill the children of these murderous uh, servants of Joash, who had become his servants um, following Joash's death. So Amaziah's behavior here, you see, is an instance of an, uh, in this instance rather, is an example of him doing what was right in the sight of the Lord. Uh, the first part of verse two there, he did what was right in the sight of the Lord. This is an example of that. Well, secondly, in this passage, Amaziah wrongly hires Israelite mercenaries, uh, which we read about in verse six. These were soldiers for hire from the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 6, he, he also hired, after, after gathering uh, men um, of war from Judah and Benjamin, verse 5, he also hired 100,000 valiant warriors, so good soldiers, out of Israel, meaning the northern kingdom, for 100 talents of silver. This was something Amaziah hiring Israelites from the north, the northern kingdom, is something that he should have known better than to do. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, in light of what the Lord had said about Judah's interactions and alliances with the people of the northern kingdom in the past, what had the Lord said? Well, the Lord, in uh, 1 Chronicles 19, verses 1 and 2, had condemned and the Lord spoke through a man of God there, Jehoshaphat's military alliance with Ahab. The Lord also, speaking again through one of his servants or messengers, condemned Jehoshaphat's economic alliance with Ahab's son, Ahaziah. That was in chapter 20, verses 35 and following. The Lord also condemned King Jehoram's marriage to Ahab's daughter, Athaliah. He was the northern 
ruler slash king, quasi-king. God condemned that in uh, chapter 21, verse 6, and verses 12 through 15 of that chapter. And the Lord had condemned Ahaziah, Jehoram and Athaliah's son, for walking in the ways of the house of Ahab. And Amaziah should have known and almost certainly did know all of those things that had happened in previous generations to his father, grandfather, and great-grandfather. And maybe great, great, great. I can't remember. Anyway, um, all those, there would have been records of this. This would have been common knowledge, especially to him. You don't interact with the apostate northerners. So he should have known better. He had ample reason to know that the Lord would oppose any use by him of mercenary soldiers from the north, but he decided to do it anyway. Because they were good soldiers. And he was about to fight a war with the Edomites, who are referred to as the sons of Seir in verse 11. And he needed good soldiers. Pragmatism. Pragmatism. There's a lesson in that, too, for the church and for us individuals as well, believers. You don't do something that is contrary to the will of God and you know it to be contrary to the will of God because, well, pragmatism, pragmatism dictates that I should do this. That I, could, I should... Allow myself an exception to God's will. You see how that's problematic, right? Amaziah allowed himself an exception to God's revealed will. This is the first example of an instance when he did not serve the Lord with all his heart, or to put it another way, did evil in the sight of the Lord. But, to stay with verse 2, did not serve the Lord with a whole heart. Amaziah's decision, by the way, that, that his decision to do this, to hire northern soldiers in the first place, was a bad idea. That that was a bad idea is confirmed by what these mercenaries later on did when Amaziah later changed his mind about utilizing their services and sent them home. We read in verse 13, But the troops whom Amaziah sent back, meaning back to Israel, from going with him to battle, raided the cities of Judah, because they were angry, verse uh, 10, they raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Beth Horon and struck down 3,000 of them and plundered much spoil. His decision came back to haunt him, in other words. The Lord providentially arranged that he should be haunted, I would suggest, from verse 13 for his decision. And the chronicler mentions a second example of Amaziah, King Amaziah, not doing uh, what was right in the sight of the Lord, but rather doing what was wrong, in addition to his hiring of Israelite mercenaries. And that is, thirdly, Amaziah wrongly worries about his, I'm calling them sunk costs. What is a sunk cost? Well, in business, many of you probably know this already, but in business, a sunk cost is... Uh, a cost that has already previously been incurred and cannot be recovered. It's already committed, and you can't undo the decision, the, co- the, the, the monetary outlays. It's a sunk cost. So Amaziah's sunk cost was 
the 100, uh, the 100 talents of silver that he had already shelled out for the mercenaries from the northern kingdom that he wanted to utilize in his battle with the Edomites. He had paid them in advance for their services. And there was no getting that money back. And this stuck in his craw. And this is, and what caused him to worry about that money in the first place that he had shelled out, which he thought was good money for good, a good cause, namely his own against the Edomites. What caused him to suddenly get irritated? Well, the Lord's commandment that we read of in verse seven, uh, that comes to him through, uh, his, his, um, messenger that called the man of God that Amaziah should refrain from bringing these hired soldiers from Israel with him into battle. God told him don't do that. Oh. But I've already paid for these guys is is what he's thinking. And so that's the first thing that causes him to fret about the monetary outlays which he's already invested. And secondly, his realization that he was going to have to not use those mercenaries from the north if he was expected to be victorious over the Edomites because God wouldn't allow it. Wouldn't allow a victory if he flatly disobeyed him by using those northern soldiers. And so he's like, okay, I can't do this. But my money. You see, money is an idol oftentimes to God's covenant people. We struggle with not oftentimes, many of us do, some of you may not, but uh, I certainly have in times past and even, even in the present at times, with with money and with giving too much weight to having money or doing things with money. Is that a struggle for you? This text is a reminder to you uh, and me that money isn't that important, especially when it involves being obedient to the Lord. If there's a cost to that, we should not be concerned about the cost to that. Obedience. <clears throat> By the way, look at verse uh, 8. <clears throat> Most of you probably do not have uh, the Net Bible. I looked at a number of different translations of verse 8. It's kind of tricky. And uh, the Hebrew is kind of awkward there, and there, there are different attempts to render it. Uh, the New American Standard, as is often the case, is particularly awkward. Remember, I use this, but I often, well, not often, but periodically don't like the New American Standard, and this is one of those places. Uh, they try to render it as faithfully as they can, but it's just, it's a mess, uh, the way they render it. So I think um, the Net Bible probably captures the meaning of the Hebrew best. And I'm just going to read to you what the, uh, the Net Bible says. So in verse, I'll read verse 7 in the New American Standard. But a man of God came to him saying, O king, 
do not let the army of Israel go with you. For the Lord is not with Israel, nor with any of the sons of Ephraim. Ephraim was one of the tribes of the north that they were particularly drawing, uh, he was particularly drawing troops from. And then, I'm, now we'll read verse 8 from the Net Bible. Even if you go, meaning Amaziah, the, Lord, the prophet's still talking to Amaziah, even if you go and fight bravely in battle, God will defeat you before the enemy. God is capable of helping or defeating. That's the Net Bible's rendering of the Hebrew there, and I think it probably best gets at what's going on. So he's saying, try as you will, you're not going to do well in battle uh, if you disobey the Lord on this on this uh, commandment that uh, is coming to you to not use Israelite troops. That's what I I think the net has it right there. Um, it makes logically it makes sense based on what we read here. Anyway, the last line of of uh, verse eight, uh, net Bible says God is capable of helping or defeating. Or, and here I will use the New American Standards, for God has power to help and to bring down. That, that, that's okay. That's the okay part of verse 8. <clears throat> that last line is a biblical truth which is repeatedly taught and demonstrated in the Scriptures. It's taught in, among other places, Psalm 33, verses 16 through 20, where we read this. The king is not saved by a mighty army. A warrior is not delivered by great strength. A horse, this is again Psalm 34, 16 and following, a horse is a false hope for victory, nor does it deliver anyone by its great strength. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope for his loving kindness. This is in the context of fighting against enemies, by the way. 19, to deliver their soul from death and to keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. So there, through the psalmist pen, I believe that was David. Um, actually, we don't know if it was David. Uh, the psalmist. Uh, it's taught we are to look to the Lord and rely on the Lord for help in battles of various sorts. And that truth is also demonstrated um, repeatedly by Israel's repeated miraculous deliverances from their enemies by God in the Old Testament. And and just, I found one place where a number of those victories are kind of quickly machine-gunned uh, by, uh, by one of God's prophets, and this is in Joshua, no, Judges, excuse me. Judges chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, the Lord is in the midst of chastising uh, covenant-breaking Israelites for their uh, idolatry and serving the Baals. And he says, um, in verse 11, the Lord said to the sons of Israel, Did I not deliver you from the Egyptians? And oh boy, didn't he? Um, The Amorites, the sons of Ammon, and the Philistines, and also when the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and the Moanites oppressed you, you cried out to me, and I delivered you from their hands. And then he goes on to say, but you've forsaken me for your false gods. But right there is a list of, I don't know, seven or eight different occasions that he references, like God says through his prophet, 
I delivered you. I took care of you. In spite of the odds that were stacked against you by all those enemies. And he did. And he does. And that's the point I'm making. God is just as capable of helping you in your crisis. A crisis you may face. Your battles with indwelling sin. Your, your battle to not believe lies uh, that the devil or the world might be trying to tell you. Your battle to, uh, to, uh, to strive to be obedient when it's difficult to do so. Because of peer pressure. Uh, or because of uh, weariness with doing good. It gets weary to do the right thing sometimes, doesn't it? But God is saying here in this passage, uh, it's an aside in some sense, but uh, he's saying, I'm the God who helps my people. When the going gets tough, I'm the God who helps. And that's true of your God. And that's true for your situation now that you may be in or in the future that you will be in. Remember that. The Lord is your helper, your strength, your fortress, your refuge, your deliverer, your strong tower. That's your God. And Amaziah had at least briefly forgotten that until he was reminded by God's servant here. He expresses his frustration now, and this is getting to the point, the third point here about he's worried about his sunk costs. He expresses his frustration with his inability to recover the money he had already spent hiring these mercenaries. He's not not pleased about losing, um, seeing his money go to waste. He says there, so the man of God, uh, I'll read verse 9 again, and Amaziah said to the man of God, um, but what shall we do for the hundred talents, but what shall we do for the hundred talents which I have given to the troops of Israel? So there's his, his complaint. Lord, what about the money? God's response to his little pity party is found in the second half of that verse through the man of God. And the man of God answered, The Lord has much more to give you than this. I suspect it might have been even with an expression similar to the one I just um, showed on my face. God, through that prophet, tells Amaziah, in effect, that he shouldn't worry about his sunk costs. Because the Lord, who owns the cattle on a thousand hills is able to provide him with much more than the money he might lose by choosing to obey the Lord. That's true today, just as much as it was true back then. There, is, there are very real costs. Many of them are not monetary, but sometimes they're monetary. Very real costs associating, associated with being a faithful follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus himself says as much in several places. When he says, uh, uh, if anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That cross is a cost. Uh, Over in Luke's gospel, he says in Luke 14, 
He speaks of the, the cost of uh, discipleship, of being a Christian a follower of Christ, a disciple of Christ, when he says um, in verse 25 of Luke 14, so Luke 14, verse 25, Now great multitudes were going along with him, Christ, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate, and we know from one of the other accounts, that Matthew's account, that means love more, uh, or love less his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, if he doesn't do that, he cannot be my disciple. That's the cost, one of the costs of being a disciple of Christ, is we must love him more than we love anyone else. Uh, by comparison, we need to hate others as opposed uh, in relation to our love for Christ. That's a cost. It's a huge cost to put other God first, Christ first, over our husband or our wife or our children or our parents or our grandparents or our friends or our colleagues. There's a cost to serving the Lord sometimes, and sometimes it's pretty painful. Costs that Christ may call upon you to make in order to be obedient and faithful to Him might include your job, your reputation, among others, or by uh, uh, with others, your ego, your time, your energy, your dreams. You may have to forego your dreams, some of them, to serve Christ. Even possibly your life. Although not likely as likely as it is in places like Nigeria or North Korea. But your Lord, through this passage and others like it, is assuring you that in the end, the benefits that He will provide you with for your faithfulness to him will far outweigh any costs you may incur for your service to him. He's good for it. For those promises he's made to you that if you will remain faithful, he will bless you. Amaziah had forgotten that. Final thing that we see in this passage taught. First, Amaziah rightly executes his father's murders. Secondly, he wrongly hires Israelite mercenaries. Thirdly, he wrongly worries about his sunk cost. But finally, he comes around and he rightly dismisses his Israelite mercenaries that he has hired. And he does so again in obedience to God's commandment. God had explicitly told him, Get rid of those soldiers from the north, through his uh, prophet. And to his credit, Amaziah obeys. Okay, I will put them away. And he does. He puts them away. He sends them back. But there are consequences that I already read to you in verse 13, because they are ticked off. Apparently they're thirsty for some good, a good fight. And they don't get the opportunity, and they're mad. And they do the things that I read, that we read of in verse 13. But Amaziah does obey. Um, and then he, 
after dismissing the Israelites from the north, he leads the army of Judah into battle, his men into battle against the Edomites, and it's a battle which he, they, succeed in winning against the sons of Seir, otherwise known as Edomites. Amaziah's decision to dismiss the mercenaries uh, he'd previously hired, and doing so before he goes into battle, that constitutes a second example in this passage of Amaziah doing what, what is right in the sight of the Lord. He does the right thing here. Again, we need to give him credit. And notice what happens when he does the right thing. The Lord honors it providentially by providing him and his army with a victory over the sons of Seir. And this victory was given to him and them by the Lord because he heeded the Lord's command to him to do the right thing. You might say, we might say more generally uh, than just that he was victorious in battle, he was, but it was a blessing from the Lord. The man was blessed by God for doing what God wanted him to do. And this is a general principle that you and I desperately need to remember when we are faced with the choice of whether or not to obey God in some situation that we find ourselves in. We need to remember God blesses faithfulness. He does not bless unfaithfulness. Now, we are regularly unfaithful as Christians. We regularly do not do the right thing, sad to say, but over time, hopefully less so, as the sanctifying work of the Spirit uh, takes place in our lives. But we are all too frequently unfaithful, are we not? I certainly am. And God forgives repeatedly and perpetually his people who are truly his by faith in Christ, he always forgives, always, our infidelity. And don't ever forget that. Those times when we say no to him and yes to sin, subtle or not so subtle, we are forgiven. But we must remember God blesses. Obedience isn't just a obey because I say so although that that should be enough. But it's obey because I say so and I'll bless you for doing so. That principle is found throughout Scripture, all over the place, including this text by way of example, but but, uh, explicitly it's found um, in the New Testament, in Luke 11, 28, Jesus' words there, but I'm not going to turn there because I want to end with uh, what the psalmist teaches. Psalm 1, um, very familiar psalm. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the seat of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on this law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season. Its leaf does not wither, and whatever he does he prospers. It's a promise of blessing for loving the law of the Lord and doing it and not following after the world in its ways 
and its example. And then, again, over in Psalm uh, 119, similarly, he says, uh, verses 1 through uh, 2, 1 and 2, although the whole, the whole psalm, uh, but 1 and 2, How blessed, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, and then he explains what that means, who walk in the law of the Lord which is to say the will of the Lord. How blessed is such a person who does that? How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with notice all their heart? Yes, you should do the right thing just because God says so. It's a naked commandment from the one who has the right to command us. But he promises to bless because he loves you. You're one of his children. He promises to not only keep you from harm, but actually bless you. Trust him for that. Next time you're wrestling with what, whether or not to do the right thing, or believe God's promises, or heed God's warnings. The Chronicler and the Holy Spirit are holding up Amaziah's half-hearted faithfulness to God as a model, are not rather, are not, I should have underlined that. God is not holding up Amaziah's half-hearted fidelity to him as a model for us to emulate. Yes, he wasn't like Jehoram. Yes, he wasn't like Ahaziah or some other later ones, the Manassehs and the like. He wasn't like them. But he is not commending Amaziah's example to you. He's not saying it's okay to be a lukewarm Christian. I'm okay with that. That's not what the Lord is saying by putting this in here. Rather, the contrary. The Lord is saying this is not the kind of covenant keeping that I want you to exhibit in your life. He wants... The whole heart. Your whole heart. Because he loves you. He knows what's best for you. And when you seek him diligently, that's when what is best for you comes to you from his hand. And also, that's the way he is the most glorified. But it's only through Jesus that that can happen. Only by you trusting in Jesus Christ alone and the Jesus that the Bible describes and that Christianity holds forth, true Christianity holds forth, not the Jesus of the Muslim or the uh, of the Jehovah's Witness or the Mormon uh, or anybody else, those are, or the liberal. Uh, I'm not talking about uh, political, I'm talking about theological liberal. Those are all false Christs. The The... The Jesus of the Bible is the only way to God. And he is fully God and fully man. And you can only experience the forgiveness that comes through him and the, uh, the heavenly life that comes through him if you trust him alone. Not anything else, that, not yourself in any way, shape, or form. You can't trust in your... Your good deeds, your going to church, as important as all that is. You can't trust in any of that, or your, or even your decision to trust in Christ. You can't trust in your decision to trust in Christ. That's trusting in you. Don't do that. Look to Christ alone. The one who 
suffered and died and then rose again to newness of life and is exalted in heaven now as the reigning monarch of the universe the God through whom the triune God is now ruling. He's your only hope, but he's a sure hope for those who will come to him in faith with a humble heart and say, Jesus, save me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that that's